Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. So today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Normally I pick a topic I draft a script, I invite a guest to complement the story and elaborate with a different perspective and create an episode that is topical. But this last weekend, I was riding my mountain bike up a long hill, an hour and 15 minutes, eight miles. And one of my favorite podcasts that I normally listen to had a compilation of short stories. Normally they are 40 to 45 minutes long. And for some reason, the topics they'd chosen didn't play out quite that long. So they never published those episodes and instead decided to take the shorter ones and create one episode with multiple stories. So today we're going to be calling it short stories. And that's why this episode is a little bit different from my normal ones. Today, I'm going to share about the best cup of coffee I ever had. No, it wasn't at Starbucks. No, it was not at Pete's or Dietrich's or other neighborhood specialty coffee shop. It was not a super duper latte that I had or a cappuccino that I had at a fine, fine restaurant. No, this was a simple cup of coffee. And I will share with you where I had it and how I had it and why it was my best cup of coffee in my life. Just for your own information, as you know, coffee is produced and drunk by many people all over the world. Brazil being the largest producer by far of coffee. Vietnam, surprisingly, is number two. A lot of other countries in South America produce coffee. Quite a few in Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Congo, where I grew up and where I had my best cup of coffee, is ranked number 29 in the world production of coffee. And last year, I think they produced about 44 million pounds. So that's nothing to sneeze at. The year was 1978. I was in 10th grade. And I got to go on a monkey hunt with my friend Dan Noren. And if you recall the Congolese Cuisine episode six, Dan was my guest on that podcast. So one morning we got up at O-Dark 30. We were staying out at Lake Quata, which was a ways away from one of the main mission stations. And we got on a motorcycle and we drove in the dark quite a few miles to a village where we parked the motorcycle and met our hunting guide. We walked and walked and walked until about 6 a.m. The dew had saturated the sobe grass, which is about four feet high, has razor sharp edges. And so we were walking through the grass to the forest areas and we had wet t-shirts and wet jeans from the dew. So we were a little bit chilly. 
we came across a mud hut that had a guard stationed there to protect the garden from human thieves and animal thieves. Obviously, monkeys and hornbills and guinea fowl and forest pheasant would come and eat the crops. And so somebody was stationed there to protect the crops from the marauders. We asked this gentleman who was there if he'd seen any monkeys or heard any monkeys, obviously, to give us some forest intel and lead us on our way. Well, he insisted that we not leave because he had a big pan of water boiling on the fire. He then proceeded to take fresh roasted and ground coffee and pour it straight into the pot of boiling water. No filter, no percolator, just straight fresh roasted ground coffee into the hot water. It boiled for a few minutes. The aroma was fantastic. Then he proceeded to hand us each a drinking implement, not a coffee mug with your granddaughter's picture on it. No, this was a rusty soup can, probably Campbell's. He then proceeded to pour as carefully as he could, hoping the grounds had all settled to the bottom, to each of us a can of coffee. I blew on mine. Again, I was a little chilly. And there was no sugar. There was no cream. There was no pumpkin spice. He's way out in the middle of nowhere. He did not have money for sugar. He did not have money for cream. Did not have money for pumpkin spice. Just pure, raw coffee. It was absolutely fantastic. I'm not sure if it was a combination of the purity of the moment. We all know that the location, the people we're with, the environment, the emotion of the moment all come together for a dining or a drinking experience. And the excitement of the hunt, the chilliness of being wet from the dew, the fun of being with friends, the anticipation of the rest of the day, and just the pure, incredible taste of fresh ground coffee. All those things wrapped up for me was the absolute best cup of coffee I've ever had and probably ever will have in my life. It is ingrained in my brain and ingrained in my palate. I would like to make a plug so that you too might be able to have the best cup of coffee. There's an organization that has partnered with coffee growers in Congo, in the Karawa area, which is where I had my best cup of coffee, and it's called Karawa Coffee. That's K-A-R-A-W-A, coffee. You can look them up on the internet. There's a website, and you can order fresh roasted coffee direct from Congo. And you can try it in your Mr. Coffee or other coffee maker here in the U.S. You will be supporting small Congolese plantation owners and garden owners and give them an opportunity to sell their product to you here in the U.S. So give it a shot and let me know if Carol Coffee is your best cup of coffee ever.
next story I'm going to tell you is about how to hypnotize a chicken. Yes, you heard me right, how to hypnotize a chicken. And I'm sure you can use the same technique for other birds. It would probably work. I've never tried it, though. But when I was a child at the dormitory where I went to school, we raised chickens for food, and we raised them to lay eggs. I'm not sure who came up with the methodology or the idea of how to hypnotize or why to hypnotize a chicken. But one day somebody said, let me show you how to hypnotize a chicken. First thing it is, you have to catch the chicken, rooster or hen, it doesn't matter. You then take the bird and you hold it on the ground and you place its head down on the ground so its beak is touching the ground. Then take a stick or a pencil and in front of his beak, from one side to the next, maybe three inches on the left side to three inches on the right side, slowly draw a line in the dirt and keep drawing the line. Be very quiet. Nobody can say anything. Keep all noise to a minimum. After seven to ten scratches across the ground in the dirt, the eyes of the chicken will become fixated on the line and on the stick. You can then slowly let go of the bird. Again, being very quiet. And he will still stay there with his beak pointed right into the dirt. You then can stop scratching the stick in the dirt and you can then step away. And in theory, until you make a noise or clap or yell, the bird will just sit there staring at the ground, completely hypnotized. It was big fun. One time we even took a chicken and we put him on the roof of the chicken coop and hypnotized a big old rooster right at on top of the chicken coop. And there was probably 15 of us kids watching him sit up there doing nothing but staring at the tin roof until one of us yelled or clapped our hands and woke him up out of his trance. And then he said, what the heck am I doing up here? We were then told that we needed to stop doing that by the dorm parents. Now, you probably thought PETA sent the telegram to tell us that we were being cruel to animals. But no, it wasn't that. Rather, what was happening was they claimed that the hens were not laying eggs very consistently. And it was messing up, <laughs> it was messing up their routine for egg laying. And they weren't as productive. So we had to stop. Now, I don't know if that was true or not. Uh, I do have a niece who lives in Virginia who raises chickens, and she sells the eggs to her neighbors. And maybe I'll ask her to try hypnotizing her hens as an experiment to see if they, too, mess up their egg-laying routine. Um, I don't want to mess up her income stream there, but maybe she could do that. In any event, next time you're at a place with a chicken – and you want to have some fun, grab the chicken, put his beak to the ground, take a stick or a pencil, scratch it in front of him 10 times, be very quiet, let him go, and he'll sit right there. So now you too know how to hypnotize a chicken.
next story is about coffee. But this story isn't about the taste of coffee. This story is about how hot coffee can actually cool you off when you're warm and hot. Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Normally one thinks that when one is hot, the best thing you can do is take a nice glass of ice water and drink it to cool your core. But today I'm gonna to share with you that as logical as that seems, there's actually a different and better way to cool off when the outdoor temperature and you are hot and humid. In eighth grade biology, one of the principles we learned about the human body is that evaporation is a cooling process. My good friend and classmate and roommate all through elementary and high school and even into college, Paul, he would always say evaporation is a cooling process. And that was sort of a thing that he would say quite often. And he would play soccer with us and he would get hot and be dripping and he'd say evaporation is a cooling process. So file that away for later on in the story and it'll make sense. So if you've been listening to my podcast and following my podcast journey and you recall episode two where I drove to Bangui, Central African Republic, flew a commercial airplane to Douala, Cameroon, and then drove five days back with a friend across Africa uh, back to Congo. I finished my conference in Congo, and two days later was told that I had to go back to Bangui, about a day and a half drive, to help with some freight to get it across the river to the Congolese side. And I was asked to go up with a gentleman named Merle, who happened to be Paul's father. And Merle was this big guy, older gentleman, been in Africa for years and years and years, and had the driest sense of humor of anybody that you'd ever meet. Quiet, didn't say much, but he was funny and witty. In any event, we stopped to pick up Merle, and we continued on our way to go up to Zongo, which was the port city right across from where the freight was. So I got to spend four or five days with Merle. Great time, but I digress. On the way, we stopped for lunch, midday. I had packed a lunch. I had a plastic bottle of water that was tepid, probably 80 degrees, because that was the outside temperature. Merle had a wonderful lunch prepared by his wife, a nice sandwich, maybe some fruit. And for his beverage, he pulled out a big green thermos that was dinged and dented and scratched and had been beaten up and well used. And he unscrews the top and he pours himself a piping hot cup of coffee. I said, Mo, what are you doing? It is so hot. It is so warm. I said, have some water. At least that's not hot. And he goes, no, you don't understand. He goes, this actually cools you off. And I said, what? He goes, yes, by drinking the hot coffee, you fool the body into thinking that it is super hot inside. And so it triggers your sweat glands to start generating perspiration. When you start to perspire and the wind blows and you're outside and it's on the surface of your skin, it then cools your body off because of the fact and the principle that we learned 
from Paul and our eighth grade biology teacher that evaporation is a cooling process. So remember, and maybe try it, next time you're hot, next time you're warm, don't go to the fridge and look for ice water. Have some tea, have some coffee, have some hot cocoa. You'll start to sweat and you'll cool off. Try it. It works. Who would have thunk? Thanks, Merle. This story is about haggling with customs agents. Anytime one brought anything into the country in Congo, Africa, where I grew up, they had to declare anything of value and certain items were tagged to be charged duty or customs on those items. Certain things like clothing, shirts, socks, shoes, underwear, those types of things wouldn't be charged, but other articles like mechanical equipment, cameras, machinery, and other certain items would be charged a customs or duty fee, bringing that into the country. When I was in high school, and then in my early 20s when I was a short-termer there, I was often tasked with negotiating with the customs agents for payment of duty based on what was being brought into the country. I would often meet the airplane at the airport, or oftentimes I would help with big giant container shipments crossing the river from Central African Republic into Congo with tons of equipment, medical supplies, motorcycles, that sort of thing. I chose to play the long game with the customs agent that I usually worked with, knowing that I was gonna be there for a year. There would be numerous encounters where there would be give and take, bartering, hassling, haggling, etc., over values, over what was included in the baggage or in the freight shipment, etc. So on certain items, I wouldn't argue. I would just say, hey, you know, we owe you on this. Here it is. Let me pay you. And that would be that. But I was always saving my credits and my proverbial bullets for later when I had a large expensive item that I wanted to get in without paying full price. So one of my previous stories where I talked about Merle and coffee and how it cools you off in the heat of the day, that same trip, I continued on with Merle to Zongo. And he and I were in charge of helping bring three giant containers. These are the ones that you see on the back of semi-tractor trailers on the freeway. And these containers were full of medical supplies, nursing supplies, medical equipment, personal effects, motorcycles, and other equipment. So after getting the containers across the river, which took a day or two, and then hauled up to the mission compound at Zongo, the next thing we had to do was to declare the value, show the manifest to the customs agent, and settle on what the duty and customs fee were, was going to be for that giant shipment. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment was being brought in to the hospitals, the schools, and other work that we had out there. So I went, I was charged with going down to the office of the customs agent and I brought him back up to the 
mission compound for him to look at the manifest, inspect the items, and then decide what the fee was going to be for customs and duty that we would be paying for all the equipment we were bringing in. So I was only 20 years old at the time, and I was with Merle, who was middle-aged, mature, experienced, knowledgeable, and definitely looked more respectful than me as a 20-year-old kid. We get ready to talk with the gentleman, and I said, so Merle, uh, you go ahead and take the lead on this uh, since you're the senior person here. And he goes, I'm not going to do this. You speak French, Jeff. And I said, yes, I do. And you speak Lingala. And Merle said, you're handling it. So here I was, a 20-year-old kid with tens of thousands of dollars worth of goods that were being brought in, and I was going to have to hassle and negotiate with this guy. So some of the stuff was easy. There was no arguing that we had some motorcycles. There was no arguing we had certain pieces of equipment. But we came to a couple of boxes, and one box was huge. It was probably the size of a stove. And inside the box were empty pill bottles. All of them had been donated by people in the U.S. to send to the hospital so that when medicine, pills, prescriptions were being dispensed to the people from the hospital or the clinics, those pills would stay clean and dry and thus potent inside the empty pill bottles when the village person took the medicine back to the village to take the prescription. Without those pill bottles, any medicine would be wrapped up in a piece of cloth, exposed to moisture, exposed to heat, and consequently might not be as effective. So I started going through this, and I showed the customs agent this box, and I said, look at all these wonderful people who donated all of their empty pill bottles so that your mother, your sister, your brother, your children, your sons, they can have clean medicine when they leave the clinic and dispensary and go back to the village instead of wrapping it up in their cloth and having it exposed to water and losing its potency and not being effective. I started opening them up, and I opened them up, and I opened them up. And he says, I get it. I see that they're empty. I said, no, 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 no. And I just started pawing through there, pulling them out, pulling them out, digging down more and more and more. He starts getting exasperated, and he said, finally, I said, he goes, I've seen enough. I said, fine. So then we go to another box. Again, this one was almost the size of a standard size stove, huge box. And in it were cards. And they'd been made by women who had inserted thread and needles inside these old used cards. They might have been birthday cards. They might have been Christmas cards. They might have been anniversary cards. But inside was a little sewing kit so that we could hand them out to the women so that they could sew any tears and rips in their clothes or in their cloth and be able to do that. Again, I belabored the point that all these people back in the U.S. had spent tens and tens of hours, hundreds of hours, putting these things together. And I started opening each of them up and laying them in a stack next to this box. I pulled out 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe more. And he finally just got so exasperated. He said, no, we're done. I said, no, 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 no. I want you to see all this stuff. I'm showing you everything, buddy. And I kept pushing him, pushing him, pushing him. Finally, he said, that's it. Take me back to the office. So we only got nicked for a couple of motorcycles, one or two small pieces of equipment for the hospital. And that was it. 
I'm guessing we probably paid customs on maybe 20, 25% of the total that we could have theoretically been charged. So again, that was a fun exercise, but we apparently prevailed and got through without too many issues. Well, I hope you liked the change of format, having four little short stories. Also, I hope you like the bumper music in between each story. That music is thanks to my son, Kevin, who came up with those clips on a synthesizer, self-taught. And it's a really cool two minute and 45 second clip. And if you want, I've added it to the very end of this episode so you can listen to it and enjoy and mellow out. So thanks again for listening. Hope you liked the stories. And if I get positive feedback, maybe I'll do more episodes with multiple stories like this one. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninga nangai, tikala malamu. My friends, stay well.